Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. I am grateful to be living in Mi'kma'ki and recognize that this is the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. We are all treaty people. Before we get to today's episode, I want to acknowledge the devastation from the recent wildfires. I don't really know what to say about it right now, other than maybe just that I know I'm not alone with um, feeling many things. I've been feeling heartbroken, anxious, frustrated, and angry, too. I have plans to speak with someone who I can ask the various questions that have been coming up during this time in relation to increased fire events, health, forestry, and ecology. That will be an episode to come. In the meantime, I'm adding some links to the Shared Ground Facebook page of thoughtful media related to this, so you may like to check that out. For now, Let's focus on the important and intriguing doctoral research of Jen McClatchy. Jen and I were put in touch by Kim Thompson of the Deanery Project on the Eastern Shore. I was fortunate this spring to spend some time at the Deanery, which is an environmental arts centre located about an hour east of Halifax, and where I have found lots of inspiration over the years. It was really fun to meet Jen and learn some of what she has been up to and I think you will find her ideas and practices fascinating and thought-provoking. Jen McClatchy is an artist, a kayak instructor, and researcher of settler descent living in Mi'kma'ki. Her doctoral research was focused on using arts-based methods to engage with waste, weeds, and wastelands to form a settler method for decolonizing relationship with land and tending to livable post-Anthropocene futures. Her art practice is process-based and focused on marine plastics, waste paper, and invasive plants, and different ways of weaving these materials together to explore relationships in the inextricably interconnected living world. Through her work as a kayak instructor and guide, she aims to share skills and attention that facilitate forming closer relationship with the life-sustaining living world. Jen and I met outside at the deanery within a tree nursery. She had just recently completed her PhD defense, and here she is telling us what it's about. It's about using arts-based methods as a way to engage with treaty as a settler here in Mi'kma'ki. So the Treaties of Peace and Friendship invited settlers to live here in Mi'kma'ki by, as per the name, in peace and friendship and to not interfere with Mi'kmaq ways of life. And as is quite obvious, um, these treaties have been violated in many ways for centuries. And so my art practice is a lot about thinking about what it means as a settler 
to live in Mi'kma'ki and actually be responsible to those treaties. Um, and part of what makes that complex is that I am complicit in this system of capitalist colonialism that exploits the rest of the living world and treats the more than human living world as a stand of resources and commodities. And so, like, for example, I drove a car to get here and I buy gas and I buy food from the grocery store that uh, was grown somewhere else. And I don't know who grew it. And uh, it's wrapped in plastic and all these things that because of the way our society is currently structured, we kind of are forced to participate in. But at the same time, um, at the same time as being complicit in that, we can also work towards uh, resiliency by being less dependent on it in ways that we interact with the land and our communities. Um, And I think that's a lot of what uh, happens here at the deanery about learning about natural building and gardening and permaculture and all that kind of thing. Um, and so one concept um, that I've learned from Mi'kmaq land-based knowledge, um, which is not mine to claim or appropriate, um, but this is just what I've learned about uh, the concept of Amsit Nogoma, which from my understanding, it means all my relations. And so as a settler, I think about what it means for me to be able to I can't just go out and claim that the rest of the living world are my relations. I have to actually be responsible to them as if they were my relations, because currently the way our society is structured, we are not treating the more than human world as our relations. Um, And so even though I am a participant in this society and I drive a car and buy gas and use plastic, use single use plastics, I mean, I try to minimize that, but I still do. Um, what it means to actually have a practice of actually being responsible to the more than human beings who I would like to be able to call my relations, um, my kin. And so I do this through an art practice that experiments with different ways of interacting with the more than human living world and um, experiments with different ways of taking responsibility for some of the harms and damages that have been done and are continue to be done by capitalism and colonialism. And so I do this um, by engaging with waste, weeds, and wastelands. And so with the waste that I interact with most is marine debris. And so I'm a kayak instructor and I started collecting marine debris while working as a kayak guide. And just because I figured I may as well pick up something that I see rather than just paddle past it. Um, and I I realized how much stuff I was collecting over the course of a day guiding tours. And then I kind of, it kind of became an exciting game to see what cool things am I going to find today. Um, and so it was less of a practice of cleaning up marine debris because it really can't be cleaned up. It's, it's in, it's, it's such a huge problem and it's everywhere. And you can clean up a shoreline and then with the next incoming tide, there's going to be more marine debris. And so, sure, it makes a little bit of a difference, but that's shoreline cleanups are not the answer to the problem. We need to stop putting plastic in the oceans. Um, but in the meantime, the plastic that is there, by collecting it, it, it was more of a practice of curating artifacts because these objects are the artifacts that tell the stories of our capitalist colonial relationship with the living world, especially because if you think about what, especially 
plastic food wrappers, for example, um, are we, we think about plastic as being able to form an impermeable barrier to protect our food, to protect us from the dirt and contamination of the rest of the world. But then that plastic actually ends up doing the opposite because uh, in the ocean, when it becomes microplastics, those microplastics infiltrate soil, water, air, land, and bodies, and they're in the food that we eat. And so what plastic actually ends up doing is highlighting just how absolutely inextricably interconnected we are with every aspect of the living world. And maybe we can just clarify that. So so some things biodegrade, right? And plastic photodegrades, which yeah. means it breaks down into tiny pieces but never actually goes away. Yeah. So photodegrades and also just um, uh, from the wave action or uh, being whipped by wind and uh, hit against rocks and just abrasion and yes and being exposed to sunlight will break plastic down into smaller and smaller pieces but it's still plastic it doesn't decompose right. so it may look like it's gone but it's just in pieces so small we can't see it mm. um yeah and so by thinking of these objects as artifacts i think about um so i can't remember which author wrote this um but uh, says something about how garbage tells the truths that we try to hide. So whatever a society is trying to hide, shove away, make it disappear. Um, but when we try and send things away, throw things away, the, that place called away doesn't exist. So um, by sending these objects back, the ocean is kind of confronting us with here. here's what's actually going on and confronting us with the truths of things that we would rather not have to face. Um, and I mean, a lot of us think, oh, I I don't throw my garbage in the ocean. That's I don't do that. That's great. Um, I mean, some people do, and that's, that's terrible. But the rest of us who, even if I put my garbage where it supposedly belongs, even though it doesn't really belong anywhere, but... Um, in in the garbage, I put it out on the curb for garbage pickup, and you know it might make it to the landfill, but it might blow away on the curb, or it might blow away from the truck, or it might blow away from the landfill. And even if it does make it to the landfill, that in a way is also just uh, relocating the problem to the future, because at some point in the future that landfill might be underwater, or it might even if it's all sealed up you know, tectonic plates shift and it will not be, it will become exposed or who knows, um, but it it's not gone forever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then you, as part of your understanding of how to interact in this modern world and these systems that you, that you as an individual can't really control that are part of the colonial capitalist system and you're trying to figure out how to be a good treaty person. So you're using these um, marine debris for your artwork to explore these issues and to spread awareness to other people or what? Yeah, I mean, both. I mean, in some ways, I feel like there's already a lot of awareness about marine debris. Um, Of course, there could definitely be more. But I think a lot of the raising awareness is it doesn't really get at, I mean, the issue is we need to stop using plastic because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, that is a problem, but I'm good because I don't throw my plastic in the ocean. I put it in the garbage where it belongs. Um, but 
um, it's not that simple. Um, and so I think there's a statistic, I'm not sure if it's an American statistic or, but anyway, somewhere around only 9% of plastic actually gets recycled. So even if you put it in the recycling bin, it might not get recycled. It again, might blow away. It might not actually make it to the facility. It might be too dirty. It might be too small. It might be the wrong kind of plastic. It might be two different kinds of plastic together that are too too complicated to separate or whatever. Um, or so, they just find they don't have a market for that yeah, recyclable type, like that plastic exactly. anymore. Yeah. And then it just ends up in a landfill. Mm. So most most of us think we're not part of the problem because we're recycling our plastic or we're cutting down on our plastic use. Or I'm thinking of even when, you know, maybe you, you buy some things in bulk and you bring your own containers and you're not putting them in plastic, but then some of the bigger items you purchase, like there would be plastics involved yeah. in the, the uh, manufacturing of them or exactly. there's plastic is everywhere, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this is a bit of a tangent, but it's just so frustrating now that there aren't plastic bags given at the the checkout. I mean, I think that part is good, but then so many foods now are wrapped in plastic. So it's like the yeah. food that you buy, it's hard to not, it's hard to buy food that isn't wrapped in plastic, even though you're not allowed to carry it home in a plastic bag. Yeah. And I mean, plastic straws or I don't know if they're banned or just used less. And, but then you see someone drinking out of a paper, using a paper straw out of a plastic cup. So mm. that's great. We got rid of one plastic thing, but it's such a small, small piece of it. And I mean, I do find straws in the ocean, but the volume of straws that I find is is negligible compared to the amount of fishing debris, like rope and fishing line and lobster trap parts and buoys and styrofoam and navigational buoys, even those big navigational buoys. Sometimes in storms, they'll break free from their mooring and they'll mm. break open on the rocks. And some of them are filled with styrofoam beads oh, that gosh. then... Uh, come apart and blow in the wind. It looks like snow, but it's styrofoam. Mm. And yeah. Um, well, maybe for the listeners, we could describe the beautiful um, scene that's just down down the hill sure. here. So we're we're sitting at the deanery in within the. I'm just going to describe, this is just yeah. a neat place where we are. We're just set up here on, on sit upon, sitting on the ground, all bundled up because it's a little bit chilly, but there's this spiral kind of brush wall and it's designed so that the, the deer don't come into the middle because apparently they don't like to go around corners that they can't see and the walls are high enough so they can't see over. So they don't, even though they could just walk right in, there's no gate or anything. They don't want to come in the spiral. So... I just want to describe that for folks that haven't been to the deanery because it's a pretty neat And the neat reason feature. the reason for that is because then in here is a tree nursery and the deer would otherwise eat the young trees. So that's right. Why. So yeah. you could do that for a garden or for, for yeah. a tree, any any kind of nursery or, or garden. And uh, and just down the hill from where we're sitting, um, there's the, the ocean down there, um, a sheltered bay. Ship Harbor. And uh, and there's a boathouse down there with a the beautiful artwork on it, which maybe you could describe, Jen. Yeah, sure. It's made out of um, mostly rope and netting that I've retrieved from the ocean or from shorelines. And it was made by a few different groups who've been here at the deanery, uh, mostly ocean bridge groups. Um, who so the I I facilitated workshops in which other people made it, so I can't take credit for making it, but um, 
So the first group kind of laid out the image. It's kind of an ocean scene. Uh, there's a sailboat and a sunset, and then you can see underwater. There's there are fish and starfish and whales and seaweed, and in the sky there's some some clouds made of buoys. Um, yeah, and so the first group kind of sketched out the the scene with by weaving rope into this net and then every other group that came along kind of added to it and and because plastic photo degrades since it's out there in the sun sometimes um and it's been there for a few years uh some of the rope is starting to degrade and so in order to try not to release so many microplastics then um, some groups who have come since it's been up there have taken parts out of it that have been falling apart and then redone them or done them differently. And so it's kind of an ongoing, evolving, collaborative mural. Um, and it is unfortunate. It is releasing microplastics. I I think that if I had left those materials where I originally found them, then they would entirely become microplastics. And so I think this way is better, but it's still not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you were just talking about the incredible scale of all the plastics in the world floating around in the oceans and everything. And it almost makes one feel like their own trying to make a good choice about not, you know, like you were just saying, not letting that, that, that one beautiful mural photo degrade or, you know, if, if you had a plastic bag that blew away in the wind, you would feel really guilty. But it almost seems like, oh, what does it even matter with the, the scope of the of the waste and how how it's just striking me how much more important it is to try to somehow get at the root causes than dealing yeah. with now the what what's come of it? Because that almost just seems like it's not yeah. solvable at this scale, yeah. at this level, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Um, and I think... So but by collecting the marine debris, it's, I mean, in a small way, it's about cleaning up because, okay, there's, I picked up this one piece of plastic and now that's one piece of plastic that that one fish maybe won't try to eat or, you know, um, but it really is not making any measurable difference in the scale of the problem. Um, so it's really more about curating the artifacts. Okay. And so... So you said you were you were exploring in like three different areas with your art. So there was yeah. the waste and the weeds and the wastelands. Yeah. So I'm curious about the weed aspect yeah. of your your research. Yeah. Projects. Yeah. So uh, the the particular weed that I interacted with most was knotweed, um, mostly because it's it's so abundant, especially here at the deanery. I don't know if you've noticed around the perimeters. There's there's a lot of knotweed and. Um, it's a it's a very invasive plant, and the reason I decided to engage with an invasive plant was because it it's kind of another aspect of colonialism is invading land and taking it over and changing um, how the ecosystem works. Um, and there are some plants that are introduced and are not so invasive; they kind of find a place in in the system in the ecosystem and. Um, are good neighbors with the other plants. Um, but knotweed kind of just takes over. And uh, a lot of people try to eradicate it with, you know, um, herbicides, but that's not something we do here at the deanery because we don't want to be adding toxins to the environment. Um, so instead, I tried to interact with knotweed to try to learn about what it could be useful for maybe. 
Um, and so I did a lot of this work through an artist residency um, at Eastern Edge Gallery in St. John's, which was mentored by Marlene Kreitz, who is an environmental artist in Newfoundland. And so I thought I would try to extract the fibers from it and try to make cord. And that did not work as I was hoping. I, I had hoped that I would be able to make some kind of string and then uh, use that string to perform some act of mending on land that had been damaged in whatever way uh, by capitalist colonial disregard for the rest of the living world. But but it didn't really work. I did not successfully make any kind of cord that could actually hold together. And so then I thought, maybe I'll use it to make paper. And uh, this had limited success. It turns out um, it's a lot harder to separate the fibers than I thought. And so it would it is possible people have made paper out of knotweed, but it requires um, a bit more of a heavy mechanical process than just handmade, which is what I was trying to do. Hmm. Um, and then I learned, as I was learning more about knotweed, I learned that it's so invasive that it can spread from just any piece of the plant. It doesn't have to be a seed, but it's just a piece of the plant and it can spread. And so if I had made cord and then used that material on some, some other piece of land to try and do mending, I would have inadvertently been contributing to its spread. So it's for the best that it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what I learned from knotweed or I, is that I think I was approaching it still with that mindset of this is a resource and I need to figure out how to use it as a resource. Um, so I still am not quite sure what the answer is to knotweed. Um, but uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about um, learning from plants what their gifts are. Um, and I was trying to imagine what I wanted the gifts of knotweed to be. Oh. And I mean, it is still invasive and it's a problem. But I also noticed that um, I saw one place where knotweed was growing through somebody's uh, asphalt driveway. And the ability to break up asphalt is probably not thought of as a gift by the owner of that driveway. But in a world that is too full of... Um, concrete and pavement, maybe we will need some kind of plant collaborators who are able to uh, repopulate such such areas with life. And I mean, I don't know what the likely once it's once not we is established somewhere, it's kind of hard for anything else to grow. But maybe that's better than concrete, or I'm not sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have an interesting relationship with knotweed. I have it at my house. Uh, well, it's just actually borders kind of the, the edge of my driveway and it's not coming through my driveway. <laughs> um, but there is a, there's a lot of it right there. Um, but I, I guess I've, I've been noticing that the kind of the nice things about it. And a few of those things are that birds really seem to love it. And bees. And bees, like the pollinators yeah. in general are amazing when those little knotweed flowers happen. Um, there's like so many different kinds of pollinators yeah. and it's just like a buzzing, like amazing. Living. Yeah. 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 And um, so sometimes like I go underneath in the knotweed and it's just like I'm in a, in a hive or something yes. like that. And yeah. I know it's good for... Uh, over providing overwintering habitat for spiders and and maybe some other other creatures like that yeah. and I've heard about its um, properties maybe to help with Lyme disease yes. or prevention of Lyme so um, and it's edible 
And it's edible. Yeah, I actually think it's delicious. Do you yeah, enjoy eating it? It's it? kind of like rhubarb, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It has a citrusy flavor. I yeah. add it to stews and stir fries and, and desserts as well. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it is nice to try to appreciate some of the good things, even if it's exactly, a little, little yeah. bit aggressive. That's what I was trying to get at, even though I think I focused on the negative and what I was saying but I, I heard you going that way and I think I just jumped in because I'm so actually kind of excited about the plant in yeah, a strange way so yeah, sorry me too. exactly that's <laughs> okay. that's what I meant to communicate is that hmm. I'm excited about its possibilities um and about changing the relationship from thinking of it as an adversary towards thinking of as of it as a collaborator and a, a neighbor and hmm. yeah like you said appreciating its gifts yeah, that's kind of an interesting, the way you said that just reminded me of, you know, there's lots of other humans that we meet that we might not necessarily hit it off with right away, or maybe we have some big differences and we think like, oh, I, mean, I don't really like that person, or you could focus on the qualities you don't like. But obviously, if you're trying to get along with whether it's a human or another species, if if we can try to see where we where we can get along instead of focusing on what we dislike. Yeah. I mean, I know that doesn't solve the problem of the fact that, it, you know, it could take over areas. But then again, we're taking over areas. We are. Exactly. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, would, would you mind just saying more about, in general, what what do you think we can do as modern people to be, this is probably no small answer, but to be good treaty people? Um, I mean, I think it's going to look different for everyone. Um, and so these projects that I did... Um, through my art practice as a part of my research were just one example of a way to do that. And so I think it, it really depends on on a person and where they are and how they relate with the land and what land they're living on and what their skills are and what they what they have to offer, what who they're relating to, who they're learning from. Um are there some general principles or like what would be the main intentions that people could follow? Um, I guess, I guess the main intention would be to try to do things that support survival and flourishing in the living world rather than things that harm it. Um, yeah, because so much of, we, we often think oh, well, humans are bad for the environment. But no, like humans have been around for millennia and Mm. it's this particular uh, system of capitalism that has us relating to the rest of the living world in a damaging way. It's not inherently human. Mm. Yeah, that's a really nice clarification for those of us to tend to feel guilty almost for being human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so the third project was looking at wastelands. Um, and again, with each of these three things that I focused on, there are infinite possibilities for other aspects that someone could focus on. So the work that I did was just one example. Um, and with a problem so big um, as the global climate crisis and biodiversity crisis that we're facing, we need all different kinds of uh, efforts and contributions from all different angles and all different skills. Um, so this is just one example. Um, so uh, as for interacting with wastelands, when I lived in the city in Halifax, um, I would go to the Birch Cove Lakes and 
hike around in the woods there because it was easily accessible by bus from the city. And this area is partly protected as a provincial wilderness area and partly it's owned by developers, um, some of whom want to build subdivisions or big box stores, um, like to expand the Bears Lake Business Park. And it's also a proposed regional park. Um, it's been a proposed park since 2006, but it hasn't become one because um, there hasn't been much movement to acquire the lands from the developers. Or, the, I mean, there has been a bit, but it's still a lot of it's owned by developers. But anyways, there's this one area that it actually was, I don't believe it was ever part of the uh, proposed park, but because it was still forested and it was adjacent to the part that is protected in the real space of the landscape, there was no way to distinguish here is protected and here, like one foot away on the other side of this invisible line is not protected. So it kind of, it, it kind of, it seemed like it was a part of this proposed park. And I think many people thought it was, especially because um, all the kind of trails that they weren't official trails, just trails that people made, hikers and mountain bikers. Um, they meandered back and forth across this invisible uh, property line, making no distinction between one or the other. And so when the area was clear cut in 2015 to make way for development, it was rather shocking to many people. Um, but even after the clear cutting, which was, it was shocking to see that, like when you'd been familiar with an area as a forest and then to see it as not a forest or it's just, it's very disorienting, you know, um, mm -hmm. but the trails were still there. There just weren't trees, you know, so. And, and there weren't other things too, right? Like it wasn't just the trees being gone. I was just wondering if you can just like remember the, what it felt like when the forest was there and then what it wasn't. Because I'm just imagining like the bird song is also yes. gone. All the other plants are also gone. The, there's no scurrying squirrels. Yeah. So in some ways, right after the clear cut, it was kind of, it took, a. I think it happened over maybe two or three months in the spring. And so that's, that's when animals are, the birds are in their nests being born, like, so I'm sure many animals were killed um, by, the, and it wasn't like trees were cut down and then taken away as lumber. They were chewed up with, I don't know what they're called, but those like. Oh, so they weren't even using the, the wood. It was just to clear it for development purposes. Yeah. I mean, seemed, I don't know what, but right. they did collect a lot of this stuff. I, I don't know if it was used for biomass or what, but mm. it, it was mostly chewed up into toothpicks. So it was really shocking to see. And right at, like when it was freshly clear cut, it was just a landscape of brown that was all covered in dead tree bits. And so it was very starkly, it was, it was jarring. But after a few months throughout the summer, green started to come back and there were animals, there were crows and other birds and squirrels and frogs and deer just not high trees and so um after the the activity and the noise stopped many of the animals came back in um but of course it wasn't the same and that that only lasted for a couple years uh, which was enough time for some small brush to grow back um and so it was it was not as jarring a scene because it was still green it just didn't have 
tall trees. Um, but then the area was bulldozed. Um, anyway, so the reason I'm tell- telling you about all these changes is because I developed a practice of tracking these changes as a way to try to understand how a landscape transforms from from a living ecosystem into a wasteland. And I mean, it it looked like a wasteland when it ended up an expanse of blasted, crushed rock, but now it's becoming, I'm not sure what it's becoming. There's construction there. I'm not sure. I think they're maybe building a hospital. I'm not sure, which is great. We need more healthcare. But anyways, um, so then um, I think it was in 2017, um, the area was bulldozed, so they kind of plowed away all of the plants and soil and rock and and into these big piles, leaving the bedrock scraped bare. So that was another fairly shocking change. And then after that, they blasted the rock and then made the area all flat. So they used the rock from the high areas to fill in the low areas. And so then... So after it was clear-cut, it was still kind of recognizable because you could still kind of find, okay, this is that place I remember, only now that tree's gone. And But then after it was bulldozed and blasted, it's just, you can't, it's just a memory of what it used to look like because it's, all the features are gone. And so the reason mm-hmm. I was tracking the changes in this landscape, um, I mean one could argue that I could have done something more productive, like, you know, protested or blocked a bulldozer or whatever. But it seemed like that was more likely to just get me in trouble. And then I would be removed from the situation and not able to observe what was happening. And also because even though it was, it's unfortunate that this forest got destroyed, I'm I also understand that every other area that, you know, where I live, um, where the roads that we drive on, all of these spaces that we move around in every day. So by engaging with the area, by being present and observing the changes, I was trying to understand how the landscapes that we live in every day, what what they used to be like and how, what kind of lively ecosystems and um, entanglements of relationship used to exist in these places um, that I like the places where I live, but I never knew what they were like before. And so um, there's a concept that I think was um, Elaine Gan, Anat Singh, and a few others uh, who write about uh, the concept of ghosts in a landscape. And so the ghosts, what they call ghosts, are the the missing species and relationships and features of that environment that um, so I guess I was trying to identify the ghosts in this landscape and by watching as the things transformed from living ecosystem into ghosts or basically what happened in that landscape is when it was bulldozed and blasted, everything was kind of plowed over and flattened and then built upon. So all of the layers underneath are just the compressed remains of the previous landscapes. And so that's kind of how sedimentary processes work, but this is just very accelerated. Um, And so um, it was about trying to understand who and what was in that ecosystem. And it was also about trying to understand how I could be responsible to 
more than human kin in, a, in an ecosystem that was disappearing, where, where it didn't seem like there was much hope of saving anything. Um, so um, this landscape in particular, it wasn't, it wasn't a part of the proposed park, and it wasn't especially spectacular. It was all just kind of small, scrubby trees, um, thin soil and granite, exposed granite barrens, um, some boggy areas, um, which are all very important ecosystems, but um, nothing spectacular or particularly unique. And so I th think what I was trying to focus on in this um, it, in, in many ways, it seemed like an insignificant landscape. That, eh, it just doesn't matter. We can plow over that one. There's a lot more just like it. And that while that's true, there's no other that tree, and there's no other that pond, and there's no other that squirrel or whoever. Right. Like you would look at humans as individual people. Exactly. You wouldn't just say, oh, we have a lot of humans in the world. It doesn't matter that those ones died. Exactly. Yes. Mm. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. Good work, team. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's really fascinating to to hear that kind of process that you must have went through over quite a long time where you saw these different phases and they were all like probably heart-wrenching to see each one. And that also like the the species that were able to kind of like come back a little bit or return at the different stages just to be like erased again. Yeah wiped out again um so i guess th this is something that i you know um i'm curious all sorts of people doing you know thoughtful work and research in the world i wonder how do you keep your chin up basically yeah that's a really good question um sometimes i i'm not sure and that's an ongoing question to figure out how to answer but i think um i think it's donna haraway who writes that um uh, the book is called Staying with the Trouble. And so all of this was kind of a practice of staying with the trouble, staying present with the problems that are the actual problems of this time, the crucial problems that we need to address in this point, at this moment in history, um, where we determine whether there's a future for humanity on the planet and other forms of life. Um, and so... And uh, Donna Harrow writes that in order to stay with the trouble, it doesn't require a relationship of hope to the future. It just requires staying with the trouble. And so it's nice to always have a nice, hopeful ending. But I think, um, is it Greta Thunberg who says hope, uh, action comes first and then hope? Somebody. Yeah, I can't remember who says that. Somebody says that. But anyways, I think... That's very true. And so a lot of what I've been learning by engaging with these these three things is I'm I'm kind of I'm staying with the trouble. I'm focusing on what is troubling. I'm focusing on the problems, but in doing so I'm also learning so much about the complex interrelationships of the living world um and how in many ways, there's a lot of resilience there and there's a lot of abundance because I think capitalism f functions by manufacturing scarcity. And mm. But if once we learn a, more about the gifts of the living world, it, there is no scarcity. There's abundance. And so we just have to stop destroying it oh. and learn to see it and appreciate it and foster it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
That reminds me of a saying that I also can't, uh, I, I don't remember where it was from, but it was a book that I read and, and it was about something like there's no such thing as garbage. Yeah, waste is only waste when it's wasted. Yes. Yeah. Uh, waste is only is matter out of place or, uh, and what waste is, is once we've squeezed all the desire out of something, what's left over is waste. And often there's nothing wrong with an object that makes it waste. It's just, um, it could be somebody's most cherished possession one day. And then, um, for whatever reason, whether that person dies and the people who have inherited it no longer, they don't value it or poverty, they no longer have a place to keep it or, um, you know, like so many different things that could happen that all of a sudden that object is now waste. Um, and so it's not anything about the object that is inherently waste. It's just we need to reposition things that are wasted. Waste is more of a, a thing that we do to objects, to materials, than, than an inherent quality of the thing. And so we just need to not do that, um, put it in a different context. And so I think about uh, material responsibility and so as responsibility to the materials that we use. And so a lot of the time we think, oh, we need to not be so materialistic, but we don't really think about what that means. And I think it, we like, we think that it means not valuing material things, like not going out and needing to buy the latest whatever. Right. And that's good. But it also, I think, I think we need to value the materials that we do have and respect those materials for what they bring us rather than just... Hmm. That's a really interesting point because part of the problem, since we live in a material world, we we do rely on certain material things. And if we just thought they were all worthless because they were material things and we shouldn't value material things, then we don't respect the things that we do have exactly in the way that we could. Yeah. And that also ties into respect and value for the ecosystems that produce that material mm -hmm. or from which that material was extracted. I learned so much from this conversation with Jen. And some of what I appreciate is her invitation by her examples of what she's been inquiring into for others of us of settler ancestry to consider our role as treaty people and about the intention to build healthy relationships with the other creatures of this earth, and that it's for each of us to think how we can do that. There will be a future Shared Ground episode just about the Deanery Project, and also one with Jen McClatchy and Kim Thompson about an art installation there called the Sky Pillar. To see a photo of the boathouse artwork made from ocean debris, which we spoke about in this episode, see the Shared Ground Facebook page, which you can easily find and hopefully like by searching Shared Ground Podcast on Facebook. Any posts you like and share are much appreciated as it helps get these voices and ideas to more ears and minds. Yesterday evening, I spontaneously got out my little recorder, which I sometimes do because the sounds were enchanting me. And this morning, when working on the final draft for this episode, I had the idea that for fun, I would add some of that night music from this particular time and place, June 11th at around 9pm on a hill near a pond. Following the usual ending, I've added a few minutes in case you'd like to listen. Maybe it will be a nice soundtrack for pondering the conversation with Jen. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.